And if the only thing you know is your neighborhood, the streets you live on, and that's the only thing you know, you don't have experiences to enrich your learning, to give you increased vocabulary, to give you the ability to relate to other things. Um, and very rarely in education, when we do these tests, do we test about things that they may experience in their own community. Um, and so I think that's where racism comes into play a lot more. And I think that's where we have to have some of those courageous conversations. I think it applies to virtual learning as well because it's very two-dimensional. And so again, you don't necessarily get to have some of those experiences. Could virtual experiences in some way be used to transport students to see other things? I think so. Do we do that now in a real way? And do kids have access to it in a real way? Not really. And, and I think that's probably where we have to tie into the virtual side of it as well. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we are back again today to talk to you about education. And in particular, we're going to be focusing on virtual learning and whether that is hurting our students. And so joining us today is Mr. Andrew Spar. He is the president of the Florida Education Association. And just to give you a little bit of background about him, so uh, the uh, you could say FEA or the Florida Education Association is the state's largest association of professional employees. And so uh, he's been a violinist since age six, and he earned his bachelor's, bachelor's degree in music education from Ohio State University, graduating in 1994. And then at Turi T. Small, Andrew served as the school improvement chair for two years and as a union steward for seven years. And he would then go on to become president of his local union in May 2003 and then led uh, Volusia United Educators until he was elected FEA president in 2018. And then in uh, September 2020, he was named FEA president. So we're excited to have him on. And Andrew, thank you for joining us. Devin, thanks for having me. So like I say, the the topic is, is virtual learning. And of course, that's something that has come up during the pandemic has been a challenge for just about everybody involved, administrators, you know, superintendents, you name it. This has been a challenge for everyone to try to get through. And so to start off, we wanted to just frame this conversation around just the task of schools implementing a robust remote learning program. And we wanted to talk about, you know, how schools get prepared to transition to this. And so just if you could, just to kind of start off, explain to our listeners just the enormity of this task, where you're talking about making your district entirely remote for students, uh, teachers, educators, everything. Just kind of talk to us about what goes into that. Well, you know, I know it feels like eternity that we've been going through this pandemic. Um, but if you, if I take us back to March of 2020, uh, that is when the world turned upside down for everyone, right? I mean, you know, everything started shutting down. The pandemic uh, was really coming on strong at that point. Um, and so throughout this nation, including here in Florida, um, we, we all look to our public schools to figure out what to do to keep the learning going. And very quickly, uh, in most cases, in like a matter of days or maybe a week or so, school districts, teachers, staff, administrators, all were able to transition the learning in the classroom to learning online. And of course, that's when the new term Zoom bombing came into effect. I think a lot of us remember uh, because a lot of school districts use Zoom or other kinds of platforms 
Um, and, and it wasn't ideal. Let, let's be honest. The transition to virtual learning was not ideal or remote learning was not ideal. It was what was needed at the time. Uh, it, we saw glaring problems um, in society at that point because we know so many families did not have internet access at home, let alone computer devices. Schools started handing out computer devices. We saw school buses uh, and bus drivers going around in communities so you could use the Wi-Fi on school buses in um, certain places where we didn't have Wi-Fi. And, and here's the thing that a lot of people didn't, I think, completely understand about Wi-Fi at that time. Wi-Fi was very prevalent in the suburban, uh, in middle and, and wealthier communities, right? In the rural communities and in the poor urban communities, not so much. And we saw that very apparent uh, when we transitioned to the, the digital learning platform. And, um, and of course, we also saw the digital divide go beyond that in the sense that you are now giving devices to kids who never had devices at all, or maybe they didn't have devices that were used for learning purposes. Um, they didn't have a laptop, but maybe they had a phone. And, th and then they're given a laptop and their skills on the laptop, because it's not something they do a lot with, may not have been at the highest level you would want uh, for learning. And then let's face it, as educators, or it's, an, it's an aging workforce. Some of us aren't very skilled at using technology. So it was, um, it was what needed to be done. It was hastily put together, obviously, because we didn't see it coming. Um, and then um, we saw a lot of challenges from that. I will say this. Uh, I think what we've seen since that point uh, is certainly some improvements. We've seen uh, kids adapting much more to the virtual platforms. But we've also all agreed that virtual learning is not the end all and be all for how to teach America and how to teach our kids. Um, and it's not the one size fits all approach. And, and I will say this, there were people um, who beforehand were saying we should we should make all learning virtual. We should give a, have gr a fewer teachers and great teachers who teach virtually to kids sitting in classrooms all over America. And we realized that does not work. Um, and so uh, if there's a silver lining in all of this, we know, A, we have to address the digital divide in a real way. Um, and B, we have to um, recognize that virtual learning is not the end all and be all. And we do need the in-person instruction. Yeah, I think you're um, uh, very right on that, Andrew, about it not being the end all be all. Just because whenever we made the switch to virtual learning, there were a lot of different factors that we had to consider uh, we mentioned some of those and, you know, you talked about how the teachers aren't, you know, the most tech savvy, but there's a lot of parents who aren't tech savvy. So, you know, they were not you know able to help their students. Not to mention, when you think about school, sometimes school is the only place that students come to where they can learn and actually have a positive influence. And in a virtual learning environment, you don't really have that. So as we're you know moving forward, because I know this isn't the end all be all, but unfortunately we're in a pandemic where with these variants and things like that, it might be something that's going to stick around for a little bit longer. How, how do you see us really, I guess, attacking some of these other factors that happen in student lives that are going to affect the virtual learning environment? Yeah. And I think we have to realize that throughout this country right now, schools are having to shut down because of outbreaks from, from COVID, from Omicron. Um, and uh, 
you know, that's not 100% new. I mean, you know, we all have heard there, there could be a flu outbreak some years uh, where a school may have to shut down. It's just much more prevalent right now because obviously this virus is spreading at a fast pace. So it is important that we make sure we have processes in place to keep the learning going. Um, let's be honest here. If you look at what's been going on during this pandemic now, uh, students in second grade were in kindergarten when the pandemic hit, which meant they didn't have a normal year in kindergarten. Then they moved to first grade, and last year certainly wasn't a normal year. A lot of districts were still uh, doing virtual. Districts that went back kept having disruptions because of quarantining and people getting COVID. And the same thing this year, uh, even though more school districts have been in person, almost all probably nationally have been in person all year, uh, they've had disruptions because of, of COVID uh, and the spike at the beginning of the school year, the spike as we return. So we do have to have a way to address how is technology appropriately used in the classroom and in the learning setting? And how do we make sure both adults and kids know how to use that technology effectively um, and that we still have systems in place uh, to make sure students are getting what they need? Uh, again, during the pandemic, we saw bus drivers, cafeteria workers, and others in our schools stepping up to make sure kids who needed food, who had food insecurity, were getting the food they needed. We had um, uh, students who, uh, or schools rather, who also stepped up in, in making sure that they were checking on students who may be in less than ideal situations. Um, but I think we also, again, have to go back to, it does take an entire community. And we all need to work together, not just to address the challenges, but to make sure that we're all there for our kids. And, uh, and, and this idea that um, we all really do have a vested interest in the success of our students um, from, and, and, our, and the children in our community from the time they're born uh, till the time they're able to, uh, to really go on, whether it's to college or to uh, their career right after high school. But we want to make sure that every child is getting what they need and gets the education they deserve, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of zip code and regardless of ability. No, I think that's the message, you know, we're trying to trying to get at, you know, with examining what virtual learning, what we've learned essentially from the last couple of years of an experiment. I mean, that's essentially what it is where I don't, you know, believe that, the, you know, remote learning was something that schools were moving towards before the pandemic happened. I think we can all agree in-person learning is is as good as it gets. That's the best way for students to learn, socialize. And so the pandemic put a stop to that. But we wanted to examine, you know, how this has affected certain student groups, whether that be by race or class, you know, family income and things like that, because we know this pandemic has, you know, exposed a lot of different things, a lot of different issues and problems that we've kind of, you know, haven't dealt with necessarily. And so it's really brought it to the surface. So we're going to take our first break and when we come back in our second segment, we're going to talk about kind of the effects of race on virtual learning and some of those the achievement gaps that have been kind of exasperated by the pandemic. So we'll take our first break, listeners, and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Andrew Spar, 
president of the Florida Education Association. And like we were saying, Andrew, before the break, uh, we've been talking about a lot of different things that kind of float around, you know, the home situation and how we had to assess with virtual learning. And then the second segment, we wanted to really talk about how race kind of plays into it. And, you know, one of the things that I was reading from the Urban Institute's website is that we really have to take care of a lot of these home issues, you know, because you have parents who maybe not graduated from high school. You've got homes that may be overcrowded. And of course, you add poverty on top of that and all these things are made worse. And even if we had in-person learning, these are some of the same things that I heard about when I worked with educators for the past five years is that there's so many different things that you all can do in schools. But once the kids are out of school, you know, we can't really do a whole lot. So, Andrew, what do you think, you know, would take to get that situation kind of more center stage in our political leaders minds and our community leaders with helping to kind of mitigate these gaps with race? Yeah, so uh, obviously, I think um, both race and uh, zip code and background play a lot um, in our education system. Uh, as much as um, we would like to move beyond it, I think those are real conversations we have to be willing to have. Um, and they're courageous conversations at times, because I think we have to recognize that our systems don't always work the way we want them to work. Um, and so... I don't think it's just unique to virtual learning because um, personally, you know, look, I, I'm someone who grew up with a learning disability. I have dyslexia. And um, and for me, uh, learning virtually when I've done some virtual learning uh, through professional development stuff is much harder for me than being in person in a classroom. Um, same thing with a lot of independent learning. Um, and yet, you know, my daughter, uh, who is a freshman at Howard University uh, in Washington, D.C., um, she she can learn and thrive pretty well online and interacting. Um, but I think there's a lot of studies out there that now say uh, that over time, virtual learning does not give us what we need. Even for the people who excel at virtual learning, over time, if that's the only way you're learning, it doesn't give us what we need. I do think, as we touched on in the first segment, uh, that we have to recognize um, how we approach learning, especially when it comes to what students have available to them um, and what students' uh, families have available to them. And, you know, if you're in a family that um, whether you have one parent or two parents or whether you're being raised by your grandmother or your aunt or another guardian um, and, and, you, uh, and you have some parents in the household who are working two and three jobs, uh, to make ends meet, and they're not able to be home all of the time, um, you create an environment in which if kids are virtual, uh, they may not have the support they need at home uh, when they're dealing with uh, a virtual learning situation. Uh, because virtual learning does require, I think, especially for your young, our younger students, our kindergartners, our first graders, our second graders, and so on, they need to have someone there to help them with that process. They, they can't just be left on their own um, because there's going to be some challenges and they're going to need some help with that work. Uh, so I think as a society, we have to address that. Uh, we already touched on in the earlier segment about needing to address the infrastructure when it comes to internet access and device access. Uh, but we also have to address the fact that in some of our families in America, Parents are working two and three jobs and they leave at dark 30 in the morning and they get home after the kids have gone to bed. 
Um, and, and so what does that mean and what does that look like and how does that impact uh, the learning of our children? Exactly. I mean, and one of the things we wanted to ask about too was, you know, okay, we were talking about this virtual learning environment that everybody had to kind of flip a switch and go to and transition to last year. So we've had a couple of years, like you say, to, to get, we've, kids have adapted, the teachers have adapted. We're in a much better spot than where we were, say, March 2020. But even with that, we have seen some, some learning loss. You know, we've seen significant learning loss in, in, in certain students. And so if you could just kind of, from your perspective there in Florida, what sort of, you know, from the data that you have seen, what has been the impact when it comes to learning loss in students? And then also just what does that mean for them? And like you say, for a student who could have been in kindergarten at the beginning of the pandemic and is now a second grade, what does that mean down the line for those students? Well, I think most educators are very concerned uh, about the learning gaps. I don't want to necessarily say learning loss because that implies you lose something while you're learning. And I think with, with our kids, it's really about learning gaps. These disruptions um, have created incredible gaps in the learning process. And we've seen it in some of the data that's out there. While most states haven't you know, implemented as much in the way of high stakes testing uh, during this pandemic, Florida, for example, did give assessments last year. And for the most part, what we saw uh, in, during the pandemic was that uh, schools who typically struggle, struggled even more. Um, and even our more affluent schools, while they were struggling, it wasn't as great as what we saw mm-hmm. with schools or individually students um, who may live in poverty or who typically um, struggle. Uh, especially, you know, what we haven't talked a lot about, but students who may not have English as their first language, uh, where English may not be spoken at home. Uh, that also plays into this, right, uh, as well. So um, I think what we have to do is a few things. One, I think there's an opportunity here to recognize we have to address poverty. Um, we have to address poverty in a real way. And in our schools, I think that means a conversation around what are we doing different with kids who live in poverty when they come through our doors? What are we doing in the early childhood? Where's the investment in early childhood right before they get to kindergarten? Uh, but once they get to pre-K or kindergarten and they're coming into their public schools, what are we doing differently for our kids who come uh, from poverty so that they can actually um, succeed at a higher level and and get the kind of growth we want to see in them. We know that kids who live in poverty are much more likely to come into kindergarten behind already, not knowing their basic skills they need to be successful in kindergarten. They don't know their colors. They don't know their letters. They, they don't know their vowel sounds uh, or their consonant sounds. They may not know their shapes or their numbers. And so they come in without that basic skill set. And, and so very often I find what we do here in Florida in particular, which I, we're trying to change, uh, is that we put the kids in school. We don't do a lot different for them. Uh, they don't have as many resources as you would want them to have and, and experiences as you'd want them to have. And then we, um, we retain them at some point, usually in third grade when it's probably too late and we don't do anything different. And so what we've been pushing for as a union is this idea that we need to have smaller classes. We need to have more supports in those classes, like uh, highly trained teacher assistants who can help students. And we need to expose them to more. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget a, a writing prompt that was given to students in Florida many years ago. And the writing prompt was um, talk about a camel and a camel ride in the desert. Um, and most of the kids at the school I taught at, where 99% of the students are on free or reduced lunch, uh, most of those kids uh, talked about camels as the cigarettes. 
because that's what they need camels as cigarettes um, and not as an animal in the desert. Um, and so experience matters, right? Experiences matter, getting out and seeing things. Uh, one of the things that always frustrated me, again, when we had this shift to high stakes testing, we did away with a lot of field trips, field experiences, um, which for kids, again, exposes them to things. You learn when you're out. And if the only thing you know is your neighborhood, the streets you live on, and that's the only thing you know, you don't have experiences to enrich your learning, to give you increased vocabulary, to give you the ability to relate to other things. Um, and very rarely in education, when we do these tests, do we test about things that they may experience in their own community. Um, and so I think that's where racism comes into play a lot more. And I think that's where we have to have some of those courageous conversations. I think it applies to virtual learning as well, because it's very two dimensional. And so again, you don't necessarily get to have some of those experiences. Could virtual experiences in some way be used to transport students to see other things? I think so. Do we do that now in a real way? And do kids have access to it in a real way? Not really. And and I think that's probably where we have to tie into the virtual side of it as well. You know, I, I, I thank you. I appreciate you spelling that out, the connection to poverty and education achievement. And just when they get into school, the lack of exposure shows up. You know, like you say, that you know, when, it, when you say camel, they're thinking something totally different than someone riding in the desert. And I, I don't think sometimes people make that connection because they may hear you say, well, we have to fix poverty. And I'm like, well, what does poverty have to do with education and, and student achievement? But you, you don't get it that, you know, kids who are in a, say, in a well affluent area in a, in a wealthy zip code, they get exposed to so many more words and, and different things before they even enter, say, pre-K. They already have been exposed to twice the number of words. And we, there's research to show that. But in a, in a household that is, you know, more so struggling paycheck to paycheck, you just don't get that exposure. So everybody comes in on like this different level playing field or level field. And so that's why you see the conversation around pre-K, universal pre-K popping up or we're trying to get in, get in earlier and expose these kids and give them a better foundation as they move up, you know, in grade level. So I appreciate that perspective, though, that poverty does impact educational achievement, you know. I don't think people quite get it. Yeah, absolutely. And look, uh, the Florida Education Association is affiliated with both the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. And just recently, the American Federation of Teachers has kicked off a literacy crusade, if you will. And this idea that we really do need to focus on literacy, but you can't just focus on reading when we talk about literacy. And, And I think that's what gets missed so often, right? What we saw happen here in Florida, and I think this is true throughout the nation if you really looked at it, is we saw, saw a narrowing of the curriculum. Um, mm. so, so, you know, again, music was important in my life. I said I had a learning disability. The way I got through school very often was music. My wife grew up in the south side of Chicago, and, um, and she's a music teacher. And what got her uh, to where she is today was music as well, was band. It was a marching band. She went to Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach to be in the marching band there. And you hear those stories play out over and over again, right? There's so much that helps uh, kids succeed. It's not just re- learning how to read. That is important. But reading in and of itself has to be able to tie and relate to your experiences. If you're reading books that have nothing to do with you about a bunch of white guys and you're African-American, you're not going to relate to that. If you're reading books about things that have happened in our country, per se, um, and, and you're not from our country originally, you may not relate to those books as well. 
we have to be able to connect the learning to the experiences people have, and then you have to expand those experiences. Uh, you know, I will say, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a fairly affluent household. My kids are growing up because we have two teachers in the household. Our, our kids are growing up a decent, Boy. a decent life. Right. But, uh, and, and so we take vacations and every time we go on vacations, what I, what goes through my mind, uh, is the experiences my kids are having and the fact that other kids aren't getting those experiences. Right. And, and again, I, I said this a little bit, I want to build on this a little bit more too. I taught in a school in Daytona beach. I taught music now, but I taught, I taught in a school in Daytona beach, Florida, 90, 99% of the kids free and reduced lunch two miles from the ocean. And can I tell you how many of my kids never saw the ocean? Um, and, you know, I taught elementary, but they had never been to the beach and they were two miles from the beach. And I think we take for granted that, you know, and, and I know I did as, as someone growing up in the middle class, I took for granted that, that when I started teaching kids, that they would understand some of the experiences I understood and what I learned really quickly, what the kids taught me. And I always said, kids teach us more than we ever teach them. And what kids taught me early on was that they didn't, I couldn't take that for granted. I needed to understand that so many of my students were not having experiences that I had, not even were close to what I had and what, how that impacted their learning. And, and experiences do, life does, life impacts your learning everywhere. Um, and, and what we have an obligation to do, I think, as a system of public education, is we have an obligation to expand the opportunities that kids have, not contract them. And when policymakers know, who know nothing about how to teach kids go the opposite direction and say, give them more reading, take them out of PE when PE is what's keeping them going. Sports is what drives them, right? Or take them out of band um, or let's not give them a performing arts scenario or let's reduce the amount of, of time we give them on um, social studies or science. That goes against everything we know because what we know about humans is that we want to gain more learning and it's got to be fun and engaging. And, and so that's what I think we miss a lot. And again, when we're talking about virtual learning, because I know that's a topic we really want to hit on, when we're talking about virtual learning, how, does, how can virtual learning be used in a way to expand the exposure that students are getting to various things and, and at the same time not become so two-dimensional that it really isn't interactive? And, and, and there's got to be a way for that to happen. No, I think you're you're exactly right. And and that's why, you know, in our next segment, as we kind of look forward, we always try to make sure we leave, you know, our last segment is more f- so a look for what can we do now with it. I think that's the attitude we would love for people to take is like, it's not the end all be all. It's like, we're not going to be doing remote learning from here on out when it comes to education. But it can maybe like you say, if used in the proper way it can be used as a tool to expose children and young students to things that they probably would never be able to see or hear from someone they would be never be able to meet from their, you know, particular area. But virtual learning could be a way of connecting them to that. If you do it in the right way, you know, it it could work. So we're going to cover some of that in our upcoming segment. So listeners, we're going to take another break and when we come back, we're going to kind of discuss how we make up for some of this lost time, but also, How can, you know, virtual learning be used as a tool as we move forward? So we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we're still having our conversation with Mr. Andrew Spar. Again, he is the president of the Florida Education Association. And so, Andrew, we've talked a lot about virtual learning. We've talked, you know, a lot about the the you know maybe achievement gaps and, and learning gaps that have persisted before COVID, but have now just been exacerbated by it. And so this segment is really all about how do we make up for the lost time? So that achievement gap that has kind of been widened by COVID, how can we try to turn back and now try to make up some of that lost ground? And so I guess the question is, you know, despite all of everything that's happening, you know, there are ways to help students make up some of this uh, time. And I wanted to name a couple examples and then give you the opportunity to kind of say what you guys are doing in Florida. Uh, One of the ideas is what they call sort of acceleration academies, uh, which consist of like small groups of, you know, eight to 12 students, and they would get, you know, 50 hours of targeted instruction over two weeks, you know, and that could aim to give them about six months of learning back or help them make up six months of learning. You know, another idea is is what they call high intensity tutoring, which is 50 minutes of daily tutoring by paraprofessionals for a year. And there are two students per teacher um, at a cost of about 2,500 per student. That's what they estimated it. So there are some examples of what we can do to help this generation that got caught up in the pandemic make up some of that lost time and lost, um, you know, learning in, in the classroom. So just, you know, the question here, what are you guys trying to do down there in Florida to help out students um, in making up for this lost instruction time? So I, I want to start with the premise I think that we all agree on, which is every child should get the education they deserve, regardless of race, background, zip code, or ability. And I say get, because very often you hear people use the word opportunity. People should have an opportunity. Kids don't need an opportunity. They need to get it. And, and when you imply opportunity, you imply that, that there's a, you know, there's, you've presented it, it's up to them. And, and that misses the whole point of education, which is everyone needs an education and we should be obligated to make sure they're getting it. And I also want to talk about the fact that um, in today's politics, we're seeing a lot of division playing out um, and this divisiveness, this disruptions that are occurring at school board meetings across the nation and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they really are harming our ability to do what needs to be done for kids, because if we're going to do what is right for every child, then we, it takes all of us working together. Um, this is not a political issue. I am firmly, it, it, interestingly enough, in Florida, we've been saying for a while, here's the union that public education needs to be a nonpartisan issue. It is a nonpartisan issue. It needs to be, and it has to stay. And ironically, in the Florida legislature right now, they're debating legislation to make school board elections partisan, uh, which flies in the face of what we should be doing. We don't need party politics driving what goes on in public education. We need parents and educators, teachers, administrators, our bus drivers, our cafeteria workers, our teacher assistants, our front office staff. We need everybody coming together and working together and deciding what's best for kids. And when we see success, that's usually what's happening. So let's start with that premise. Everyone is working together is what really leads to success. So these acceleration academies, these high intensity tutorings, uh, all these other remedial kinds of things that we talk about to help kids catch up. Um, it's hard to know what catching up really looks like. And I think what we need to do is not fall for a one size fits all solution 
or that there's a silver bullet out there because we can do these kinds of things. And we do some of this stuff and have, quite honestly, even before the pandemic. And we still face the same struggles. Let's be honest. Let's have that real conversation that this idea that there is one way to do it and then that's what we should all do and that's going to be it it is ludicrous. What we need to do is address the underlying issue. And so what we've been promoting and think should happen is especially with students who are struggling, um, especially during this pandemic, is we need to make sure that we have smaller classes. We need to make sure that we are supporting our teachers and that we are, you know, look, schools that, that struggle, if you look at the turnover of the faculty and staff at those schools, it's really high. And when, and I was at a school like that, the, the school I taught at, I taught all nine years at Turie T. Small Elementary School in Daytona Beach, Florida. And in all nine years, when I first got there, I was hired, I was one of eight new teachers. The next year, there were 12 new teachers. The year after that, they did what they call a reconstitution of the school, and there were 23 new teachers. And this was out of a staff of about 35. Wow. Um, and so um, after that, we were down to one, two, maybe three was a high year new teachers. And we created stability. And when you create stability, we saw the school start to take off. So first and foremost is we need to address the shortages we're seeing in teachers and staff right now, which are massive throughout the nation, especially here in Florida. And what we have to also talk about is the shortages exist at a much higher percentage in our urban school districts, um, in schools that had to have higher poverty rates, um, And so we need to address that and have conversation around what are we doing to keep people at our uh, in our schools, teaching in our schools, working in our schools. Um, And then we need to make sure that in our schools where kids are struggling, not only do we have teachers, but that we have highly trained teacher assistants or paraprofessionals um, in those classrooms working side by side with those teachers. And I've been a proponent and we did this in, in the school I taught at and they still do it there. Um, of this idea of what we call plus one. And plus one was an additional hour added to the day. And it wasn't tied to anything specifically. It gave teachers more time to cover the content in the course of the day. Um, it, it wasn't uh, an hour added onto the day. It was just the school day was an hour longer. And, um, and it, it came up with two ways, right? Teachers got paid more for it, which didn't get teachers there, by the way. It doesn't get <laughs> teachers to come to the school, but it got them to stay. I think it helped with that. Um, but it also gave them some relief in feeling always pressured to get everything covered in not enough hours in a day. And then I think we need to look at some of these other programs that have been out there, um, after school programs, before school programs that are enrichment and ways to expand um, the, the academic, the co-curricular activities and the extracurricular activities for students in a real and meaningful way. Um, and so I think we need to do that as well. Um, and then I think we have to recognize that when kids come in behind, our goal should be to get them as as close to grade level or on grade level as possible by the end of that kindergarten year. And if they're not there, then we should do something different so that when they're going into first grade, we're not just saying, well, let's go into first grade and still have them be behind. And then second grade and have them be behind. And then in Florida, you retain them in third grade and you've lost them at that point, right? I think we we lose a generation in that uh, and we shouldn't. And so I think we have to do things differently between kindergarten and first grade to really help kids learn in a more intense way, maybe smaller classes, more assistance, more curriculum uh, support. Uh, Those are the kinds of things we need to do. And I think we can do it if we just reimagine what public education needs to be. And we should focus on literacy and we should focus on overall the education of our children 
um, and the experiences that they have. And I think if we do that uh, and then enhance that learning through other means, through virtual learning, through other experiences that we can do, um, because I think technology is very powerful if used right and, and used as another tool to help our kids. Uh, I think we can do some amazing, uh, amazing things. So I hope we use this coming out of this pandemic as an opportunity to actually do things differently. Um, and then I think, I hope we have real conversations because right now in Florida, and I think in some other states, um, Texas is another one where we're seeing it. Uh, we're seeing people try to shut down conversation around race, around diversity, around, um, uh, you know, we, we have a governor that's actually said we're not allowed to use the word uh, equality in our schools anymore. They don't want to talk about equality. They don't want to talk about um, uh, intervention, you know, things that that really aren't. It, it's not just about race anymore. It's also about kids who struggle to learn uh, because they have a learning difference. Um, and, and and so inclusion is another word they don't want us using, you know. And, and so when I think about that kind of stuff, I think, boy, that is really getting us away from what we actually should be talking about. Because we should be talking about diversity and what that means in our schools. We should be talking about poverty and what that means in our schools. We should be talking about uh, ability, uh, the varying abilities of students and what that means in our schools. Um, there's a lot we should be talking about. Uh, and we can't talk about it if the conversation is don't talk about those things. Um, and, and so, you know, my hope is that we as a society start realizing parents and teachers need to work together. That's what we always have done. Uh, that's what we need to do more of and not this idea of parental rights that you hear a lot of now, which let's face it, it's not about all parents having rights. It's about certain parents having rights. It's a divisive tactic. Uh, it's a tactic that was, you know, that's been used throughout our history. Um, and this idea of, of saying that, you know, we can't talk about certain things because it might offend someone um, or make them feel uncomfortable. There's literally a bill in Tallahassee that says we can't make students or parents feel uncomfortable. And if a parent or student feels uncomfortable because of a conversation that's happening in a classroom, we have to, um, you know, the, the parent could sue, for example. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know, someone pointed this out the other day. It was people feeling uncomfortable that led to water fountains that said white and colored. It was people feeling uncomfortable that led to the segregation of our schools. It was people feeling uncomfortable that led to people having to sit at the back of the bus. Um, for people to be talking about that today and saying that, that that's a reason not to have conversation uh, is is so counter to what we should be doing in education. You know, um, Andrew, my, my hope, especially after hearing all of this, is that we might see Andrew Spar 2022. Because uh, <laughs> there's a, you know, Florida's got a lot of stuff happening right now. We know that, you know, of the people who are supposedly running, uh, you would uh, definitely uh, help a lot better. So um, I don't know if you thought about it, but just wanted to throw it out there. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it, Adrian. But no, uh, my focus is, is supporting the teachers and staff in, in the state of Florida and making sure we have the best public schools for every child, regardless of race, background, zip code, or ability. That is always going to be my focus. I, I still have a daughter in middle school, and I want to make sure that she gets the education she deserves just like everyone else should. And on that note, that's kind of what my question is about, because I lived in California a little bit, and I was very intrigued to see all the capabilities they had comparatively to what I saw in Mississippi. And I think that what we've seen in this virtual environment, um, there are a lot of disadvantages in the standards that we have, because we have some who have really good capabilities and technology and know how to work it, and some who don't. 
not to mention a lot of the social disadvantages that kids are going through with isolation, not being able to develop friends in their circles and things like that. So if we if we really ignore all of those things, what sort of consequences are we setting ourselves up by not by, by really, you know, kind of not addressing these flaws? Yeah, I think if we don't, we lose a generation, right? And and that's what really has me worried. I, I think that the pandemic certainly exposed a lot more of this. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing some pushback by people who were kind of hiding it, if you will, right? They, they, they were getting away with this idea that we were shortchanging our kids. Um, and the pandemic kind of exposed all of that. And so now it's kind of like shine a light on it. And all of a sudden you got people saying, no, no, we're not going to talk about that. Um, and so I absolutely do think we, we have to address um, the, the inequities that exist in our schools, in our society, right? It's not just in our schools. Um, but I, I've always believed this. And, you know, you look back in time, and, and I say this a lot to some of, uh, fr- some of my friends who think a little differently than I do. Um, our country was founded on the premise that you have an educated citizenry. Now, back when it was founded, it was only founded on the fact that it was men, white men in particular, who were really running the country and, and made all of those decisions. But, but um, you know, women didn't have the right to vote. Minorities didn't have the right to vote. We had slavery in the country at the time we were founded. But, but it was founded on this premise that we needed an educated citizenry to protect the, our, you know, to protect the idea of a, a democratic state, right, of, of um, a democratic republic. And, um, and throughout history, People have pointed to the importance of public education, right? You know, a lot of, we just celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. He certainly talked a lot about the importance of education. Um, and there have been many people over time um, who have talked about the importance of, of education. And there's still always been this, this element, if you will, um, a, a small number of individuals who have tried to use education um as a way to keep people down. And, and so we have to bust through that, right? And I think we have to make sure that every child has the support they need, not just the schools, but it's a community responsibility, right? I think in the community, we all have to support each other and support our public schools. Um, and then as educators, as teachers, we need to recognize sometimes we have our own biases in how we approach learning. Um, and we have to be willing to to have difficult conversations. There was actually a, a training on the civil rights movement that was supposed to happen in Osceola County, Florida, this past weekend. Um, and Osceola County, for anyone who doesn't know, that's the land of Disney. Uh, Disney World is located in Kissimmee, and it's mostly in Osceola County, which is where uh, Kissimmee is, right outside of Orlando. And the workshop was canceled due to a new rule and law in the state of Florida that talked about uh, the concern over CRT, which they've, you know, completely missed what CRT is and, and have expanded it to anything talking about race. And so literally a training for teachers on the civil rights movement was canceled because there was a concern it might violate the law. Think about that for a moment, right? So as educators, we want to know more about how we can better teach all of our students, and yet there are obstacles in the way keeping us from doing that. And um, and so I think we need to be able to, to really have uh, some, to point that out and to have some real conversation around that. Um, and then um, I think we also uh, need to, to recognize 
that um, high stakes testing is not the end all in the all, right? That what we should be focused on is student learning and the teaching and learning in the classroom. And we should recognize that a student who comes to school way behind where they should be and starts to make inroads and is catching up should get credit for it. You know, we have a situation here in Florida, and I think this is very common throughout the nation, where you could have a kid who is two years behind grade level, let's say, and in the course of a year gets a year and, and three quarters back, if you will, right? They, they get really close to getting where they need to be, but they haven't made it yet. And our system still punishes them because they haven't made it yet. Instead of recognizing the incredible gain and looking at what happened, what did we do? What did that student do? What did the people working with that student do uh, to make that kid get those incredible gains? And how do we make sure we do it again? And instead, we tell the kid they're a failure. And then we wonder why they give up. So that is an inherent systematic problem that we have to address as well. And so I think it takes parents and educators and the community working together. And it takes lawmakers, uh, the policymakers, the people making these decisions who very rarely have public have any education background. They think because they went to school, they have all the answers and they don't. And so we've got to uh, really hit on that as well. And, um, and that's, you know, that's my hope. That's where my work is. And the work of, I think, unions throughout this country is how do we bring voice to the challenges that we have? How do we make sure every child, and I'm going to say it again, regardless of race, background, zip code, or ability is getting the education they deserve. Um, and we all work, want to work toward that end. And that's what we should be doing, regardless of the politics of everything that's going on around us. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard sometimes, especially now, to separate the politics because it became very political with whether you're talking about masks in schools and we saw the ridiculous things happening at school board meetings. That has become a political you know, battleground now with school board elections turning into these monstrosities of, you know, political, you know, fights and things like that. And so that is going to be one of our topics later on this season is the battle over school boards because they we did a lot of people realize, oh, the school board really actually does have quite a bit of power over what happens, you know, in my child's school and inside the classroom. So I think the the things you're talking about, us having to get lawmakers and teachers and educators on board with the things that we need to be pushing for, whether that's smaller classrooms, smaller class sizes, trying to find ways to improve teacher retention. It's going to take getting our you know, our political friends on the other side on board with some of these ideas. And, you know, I, I don't know how we get there because things are so political. But hopefully, like you say, now that COVID has really exposed the system for what it is and it's not as, you know, hunky dory as we once thought, there are very real issues. And one of the things is that, you know, black male students are having a very tough time in the education system. They are typically the most disciplined. Or, or suspended, but they're also, you know, struggling when it comes to literacy and achievement. So there are very real issues that we have not dealt with. And COVID has just pulled back the curtain essentially and said, hey, this is what you're, re- what, this is what's really going on. And I think a lot, it's, it shocked a lot of parents to see, oh, okay, maybe we should be more involved to be paying closer attention to what's really going on. So I think, you know, hopefully, we can get past the political discourse and have some very real conversations about 
what's going on in our schools and not have it be like you say, this is a political fight and I'm just trying to, you know, stop the other side from doing what it wants to do rather than what's best for the students. That's really all that should matter um, at the end of the day. So we'll go ahead and take our very, very last break. So we have one more question for you, Andrew, and then we get you out of here. Um, This has been a a wonderful conversation. Hopefully you're learning a lot, listeners. So we're going to take our very last break and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here. Our final message. Remember, we're joined today by Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association. Now, Andrew, uh, one of the things I think is that, you know, 10 years down the road, we're probably still going to be talking about the effects of virtual learning and what it's done just because there's going to be a lot more data that's being processed and put out and a lot of people who've been studying it. But we do know, and you've said it, technology is a huge building block for our schools. We just need to make sure that there's equity and equality for all communities. And I think, honestly, Andrew, um, no matter whether we're looking at virtual learning or if we're looking at in-person learning, we've got to make sure that the focus is always on the students' needs. So for your final message, what do you say to people to make sure that no matter what decision they make when it pertains to education, we always keep students' needs at center stage? Yeah, great question, Adrian. Thanks for asking that. And and I'll start with what Devin was talking about before the break, which is school boards. You know, party politics is is our enemy, I think, in a lot of this stuff uh, here. Um, And um, I've watched school boards that have Republicans and Democrats on them, and they're not elected in that sense. And they work together really well um, because they focus on the issue at hand. And I think if we truly want to do what's best for kids, we're going to make sure that we have set it up where parents and educators, you know, that homeschool connection is strong and that the community is supportive of the people who work in our schools, our teachers and our staff, and that they're supportive of our students. Um, you know, I, again, I, I talk a lot about the school I taught at because that that's, you know, I spent nine years there and I still am connected to that school is where my wife still teaches. Um, but it is, it is in one of the poorest communities um, in, in Florida, and um, it's in, in the shadow, uh, literally, of, a, of the uh, largest insurance company in America. And, you know, the inequity when I see something like that, right, because I think businesses have an obligation to in all of this, right? They talk about needing an educated workforce. They got to give back. And when you have really wealthy, strong businesses, whether it's an Amazon or or an insurance company or a utility or whatever it might be, right, a law firm, we should get. They should have to give back. They should give back. They should have that obligation, that feeling that they need to contribute to this work as well. And so, I think it's really going to take that. It's going to take all of us working together to focus on the fact that our kids need to be supported in order to be successful. And every child, every child, and every child is different. Every child learns differently. Every child has different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, we hear this a lot when you hear people talk about leadership, right? When you talk about leaders, leaders look for people's strengths and weaknesses, um, and they try to match 
everything up the right way so that they have the strong team, right? You don't want everyone who's good at one thing. If you're on a football team and you have a hundred great quarterbacks, it's not going to do you any good if you don't have any receivers or running backs, um, you know, or you, you have a powerful offense, but no defense. Again, I went to Ohio state. We learned that lesson this year, right? We had a really powerful offense, but not a very strong defense. It takes getting the right people in the right place. And, and it's no different with kids. How do we leverage the connections they have and the strengths that they have to help really move them through the education process in a real and meaningful way? Devin, you talked about the black male, and, and that's true as well, right? Black males are not only disciplined more, they also are identified more as having learning diff- difficulties um, and learning disabilities. And there's a question about whether they're over-identified um, because of some of the problems and inequities we have in our system. And so I think we also have to be willing to have honest conversations. And if we're not willing to have those honest conversations, I don't think we'll ever get over uh, the challenges that we see and the difficulties that we see. Um, But I think you're right, uh, Adrian, we've got to make sure we stay focused on the kids. What is best for kids? And I will tell you to end with this, what is best for kids is making sure that they have caring, dedicated teachers who can afford to stay in their school rather than seek employment elsewhere, that they have caring and supportive uh, staff working with those teachers, making sure they get to school safely, making sure they're fed when they're at school, that they're cared for, supporting them all the way through that process, um, and that they have that stability, and making sure there's that strong connection between the school and the home so that you know, a lot of us talk about this and I, and it still happens. And I know people put it down and say it doesn't, but it still happens. There were times where if you did something wrong at school, by the time you got home, <laughs> your mom knew about it, right? Mom knew about it. Mama knew about it. And you were going to pay a price when you got home if you had messed up in school that day. And we got to somehow get back to that, that, that there's that connection. And not just talking in terms of discipline, but in learning too. That, that mom knows when you're getting home that day that you got homework you got to get done. And, and if we can build those kinds of connections really powerfully, and if we get the whole community involved in supporting our schools, then, then I don't, I'm really optimistic that we can do anything and that we really can make sure every child is getting that education they deserve. That's a great message. And that's a great way to send us off here you know, as we wrap up this episode, because education is is sort of not sort of it is the foundation of a of a lifelong productive you know being a productive member of society. You have to start with a grounded you know education and a well rounded education. And so, it's a complex problem. As listeners, if you've probably heard us talk about it, there is no one solution. We've heard we've had a few people on the show to talk about education, and we've heard a lot of different solutions. But the but the the goal has always been what's best for the student. And so I think we have to get away from, like you say, the partisan politics and and not let the conversation be hijacked because some people, you know, feel uncomfortable about, a, you know, the story being told a different way from what it has usually been. You know, we have to have those conversations. They're necessary for us to be able to give students the best possible uh, education as we move forward. And so, you know, I appreciate you, you know, your message. And obviously, you know, you know the work that needs to be done. You've been on the ground and you've seen it in, in the real world. And so I appreciate your perspective and, and bringing it to us and to our listeners 
Um, and so, and, and listeners, one thing to keep in mind too, this is why you should be active in your community when it comes to civic engagement, attending school boards, voting, because school board members are elected. So this is, it all comes full circle. When you talk about the topics we discuss here on the show, we talked about civic engagement, why it's so important to vote. And now we're talking about how that impacts what your, your kids are learning in school, whether that's virtually or in person. So um, yes, Andrew, I love the message and I, and I appreciate you coming on and talking with us. Adrian, I know you got some some comments too. Absolutely. Uh, I just appreciate everything um, because like I said, I worked with American Fidelity, which was more financial services as a partner with education communities. And I got to learn a lot about what we need to do in our schools. And as somebody who grew up in a minority school where we didn't have a lot, I just have a special part for anybody who works any aspect of education. So I appreciate everything you do, uh, Andrew, and everything you've said. And like I said earlier, um, let us know what we can do to learn about FEA and how we can follow what y'all are doing. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Adrian, Devin. I appreciate you letting me be on tonight. Uh, you can follow uh, the Florida Education Association. You can go to our website, feaweb.org, feaweb.org. Uh, you can also find um, Florida EA on Twitter, and you can find the Florida Education Association uh, on Facebook. Uh, I am also on Twitter at Andrew Spar FEA. Um, and so you can follow me on Twitter as well. And so uh, again, thanks guys. I appreciate the conversation and the opportunity to join you. Absolutely. And what we're going to do listeners, we're going to let Andrew go, but remember Dev and I, we got to come back and do our ending. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dadeau. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and giving a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we're going to go ahead and give you a look forward as to what is upcoming here at the Black Agenda podcast. So first up, our weekly roundup. We'll be back with you this Saturday, January 29th for weekly roundup number two. That is our second one of the season. Again, this is our chance to bring you all the news from the past week, whether that's funny, political, entertainment, business. We cover it all here and we try to make it fun and engaging. So make sure you tune in. This Saturday, January 29th, for weekly round of number two. Now, coming up after that, on February 1st, that's going to be our next regular episode. We're going to be talking about Black contributions to America's success. And so that is going to be our very first episode of what is Black History Month. And so um, we're going to be coming up with some really good topics and some really good guests. And so our very first episode of Black History Month, a.k.a. February, is going to be Black Contributions to America's Success. And that's going to be coming on February 1st. After that, a week later, on February the 8th, we'll be talking about relationship management in the Black community. So we're hoping to get a matchmaker on the show, give you some relationship tips that maybe you can use to help strengthen the relationships you already have, but also build some new ones. So make sure you tune in for the relationship management in the Black community coming out on February the 8th. And then we'll follow that up with an episode regarding cultural appropriation versus appreciation. There is a line there. And a lot of people flirt between appropriation and appreciation. We're going to dive into that. So make sure you tune in for that episode 
that's coming on February 15th. That is going to be cultural appropriation versus appreciation. And then we're going to wrap that that month up. We're going to wrap Black History Month up with an episode regarding reparations and what should they be. So that's going to be coming to you on February 22nd. So a lot of great content coming in February, talking about Black contributions to a success, relationship management, cultural appropriation. And then lastly, we're going to wrap it up with reparations and what should that look like. Great, great stuff coming to you. So make sure you tune in in February um, for Black History Month here at the Black Agenda Podcast. And so before we go, we also want to let you know, well, I'll, I'll let Adrian know, let you know what's coming up as far as our donating and um, some some merch could be coming to you soon. So Adrian, let, let them know what's going on. You are right, Devin. Merch and ways to donate, um, th- that's coming to you soon, listeners. We're excited about the transition that we're going to be having with Patron, uh, with our merchandise, with our different tiers in there. It's going to be really, really awesome. We're waiting to launch that till, till, till we get our website developed because with our website redevelopment comes a, a, a logo refresher. So um, once we have that, we'll have something we can slap on our merchandise and go ahead and promote that. So like I said last week, make sure you save your nickels, pennies, dimes. Uh, we'll develop some cash app, but now we're no, just kidding. We don't need cash app. We've got our own way to do that. But just make sure you save up so that way when we launch, you'll be ready to give to us. And like I was saying last week, the month of February, that's coming up. Black History Month. We're going to do a charity of the month. Definitely going to be some sort of black organization to kind of promote and ring with Black History Month. But be on the lookout for that. That's going to come on our first episode, like Devin was saying, in the month of uh, Black History Month, the Black Contributions to American American Success. So uh, you'll have to wait until then. Exactly. Got a lot of great things to look forward to. New websites, new merch, uh, big things happening here. So lastly, before we go, you can follow us. Make sure you do this. We can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at blackagendapod.com. Uh, or actually just at Black Agenda Pie, excuse me. But follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we're also on every single streaming platform. You name it, we're there. So Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, that's where you can listen to us. Go back and listen to our some of our past episodes. We've got some great conversations in there. We mentioned critical race theory. We talked about it on the show in season three. So make sure you go back and listen to that. It was a very good episode to explain exactly what is critical race theory. So Again, for me and Adrian here at the show, we appreciate it. We want to give a shout out again to the Florida Education Association and their president, Mr. Andrew Spar, for giving his time and speaking with us. We hope you learned about virtual learning and what that really means for students, but you also have a better understanding of why it is important to be involved in your local community and voting because everything that you do in your local community affects students in the classroom. So get involved, folks. That's that's the message here. And so we're going to leave it there. We appreciate you tuning in. We'll see you on Saturday. And until then, we'll catch you next time.